0: We're in the midst of a summer series in the Psalms. Uh, we can see pictures of the physical heart. We can learn about the physical heart. We know what parts are there. We know how to handle hardening of the arteries of the physical heart. We know how to handle blockages with stents. There's all kinds of things we know about the physical human heart. But when it comes to the heart, as it's biblically understood, things get a bit more complicated. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 107, we're going to study this morning about what to do with a heart that is in distress. And that is a very relevant topic for all of us this morning, isn't it? 2020 has quickly become one of the most distressing years that any of us can remember. The COVID pandemic, all the issues and debates that rage around the pandemic. And then, of course, there's the racial tension that has created some peaceful protests, but also some not very peaceful riots. There's been calls because of tragic events to go too far and defund the police. And as you talk about defunding the police, many of our major cities are experiencing a rise in violent crime that is unprecedented. It seems that no matter where we turn right now, our hearts are filled with distress. Well, I've got a little bit of good news for you this morning before we dig in. Research has shown that 2020 is not the most distressing year in world history. We know this for a fact. Actually, the most distressing year of world history wasn't 1349 either, when the bubonic plague, the Black Death, killed over half of Europe. Nor was the most distressing year, 1918 a year that we've become more familiar with as we've learned about the flu that took the lives of between 50 and 100 million people, most of whom were young adults. The most distressing year in world history wasn't 1929 when the Great Depression hit and economies tanked. No, a Harvard professor, an historian, and an archaeologist whose name Michael McCormick says that research proves that the most distressing year ever to be foisted upon human history was 536 AD in 536 a mysterious fog fell upon much of the earth Europe the middle east much of asia was in darkness well not total darkness but at at the brightest point of the day it seemed no brighter than dusk and as a result of this fog the sunlight was blotted out and the temperatures dropped and without appropriate hours of sunlight and with cooler temperatures crops failed there was worldwide starvation and then to top it off a plague hit And half of the population of the Eastern Roman Empire was killed. As a matter of fact, people point to 536 as one of the main reasons the Roman Empire ended up finally falling. Researchers discovered that the mysterious fog that was causing all of the problems was volcanic ash from multiple huge eruptions from somewhere around Iceland. And it plunged the world into economic deprivation. A great depression, we know, that lasted for over a hundred years. How do we know that? Because for a hundred years, there was no presence of lead found in the villages. What does that matter? Coins were made of lead. And for a hundred years, there was no coinage because there was no commerce, because there was no economy, because there were no crops, because there was no light and cold temperatures. But after a hundred years, lead was rediscovered and things started to get back to normal. So 2020 is nowhere near the most distressing year of human history. However, it's still a year of great distress. And how are we to deal with this distress? Well, one of the things that we need to realize is that even though 536 was a horrible year for the Roman Empire, a horrible year for many lives, it was also a time of great spreading of the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you look through history, one of the things you'll discover is that whenever the going gets tough, it's always the gospel that gets going. And may that be true in 2020 as well. Psalm 107 gives us four vignettes, four categorizations, if you will, of trial. Trouble, distress. And there are lessons that flow out of these vignettes. These vignettes that were true historical events and situations of the people of Israel, but then parallel representatively events, circumstances, and situations in our own lives. And the theme of Psalm 107 that's repeated again and again and again and again is the steadfast love of the Lord, the Old Testament word for grace, God's commitment in covenant loyalty to show kindness and favor to His people, especially when we least deserve it. And if we can bring our hearts through the process God outlines in this passage into contact with His steadfast love, our hearts will be buoyed, we'll find less distress, and we'll find that when the going gets tough, the gospel gets going. And there's renewal and revival and restoration in our own individual hearts, but in the heart of the church as well and then a corresponding response of awakening in the culture. So let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. I'm only going to read one vignette. There's four vignettes. I'm going to read the first. I'm going to read Psalm 107, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll appeal to the rest of those vignettes as we go through the message this morning. This is God's Word. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And what we learn here is that troubles are universal. There isn't one person in any part of the world that doesn't face trouble and distress. Vignette number one. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Were to think of Israel wandering in the desert, or Israel wandering in exile in Babylon. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. God delivers us. From distress, He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. And then this refrain is repeated throughout. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, errant an authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. He wants to relieve us of distressed hearts. He wants us to know that by his grace, when the going gets tough, the gospel gets going. And he wants us to learn to rest in his goodness, his wondrous works to the children of man. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need these words. Our hearts need to be buoyed. They need to be unburdened from distress. And, oh God, does this world need the church. And so equip us this morning. Free us and help us to experience all that you have for us afresh in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The cure for distress in our hearts is the steadfast love of the Lord. This this psalm is bracketed by the steadfast love of the Lord. There's 43 verses. Verse 1 points us to the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 43 points us again to the steadfast love of the Lord. It's bracketed. It's it's a steadfast love sandwich. There's there's two slices of steadfast love bread. And yet all the fixings, all the meat is also steadfast love. You want to get out of distress? Do what a lot of people do, eat. But eat not physical food. Man does not live by bread alone. But, but eat a sandwich of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's the beginning, it's the end, and it's everything in the middle. So how do we do that? Well, three elements to the process of bringing our hearts under the control of God's steadfast love. First of all, let troubles bring you to the end of self. You know, I could camp out on this this morning and we could all go home. Let troubles bring you to the to the end of yourself the end of your ego the end of your pride the end of your control the end of your fighting we are a people that have learned to scrap and fight for everything we have and to not do that is precisely countercultural but how many times does God say, stop, be still? Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need to be still. Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. Isaiah 30:15, one of my favorite verses. I've preached it many times in this church. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Right? The, the enemy is about to swoop in on Israel. And Israel's wanting to, to fight and scrap and plan and problem solve. The wanting to... <clears throat> well, God says what they're wanting to do. The next verse says, But you said no. rest you said no to quietness you told me we're gonna mount up on our horses we're gonna mount up on our chariots we're gonna flee the enemy and we're gonna run toward our allies and when we fail to come to the end of ourselves what does god say okay therefore you will flee until none of you are left. It's so counterintuitive when we face distress to be still. The first vignette that we read is about the Israelites wandering in the desert or having to wander in Babylon in exile. And God told Israel what they were to do. They were to to sit and they were to live and they were to plant gardens and they weren't to seek to escape and they were to seek their prosperity and the prosperity of the Babylonians. But Israel remained willful. They fought it and it was counterproductive. It's like Numbers 21 When Israel was in the wilderness, and you've heard me talk about the serpents that that came and bit the people because they were they were wanting to maintain control. They they didn't like what God was doing. And and God put a, a serpent on a pole and said, Just look at it and you'll live. But many of them didn't look. They tried to run away from the snakes, they tried to fight the snakes, they tried to scrape off the snakes. And the more they tried, the more they died. But if they simply came to the end of themselves and looked at the serpent, they would live. So whether the vignette is wandering in the wilderness, needing to be still, needing to live in quietness and trust, whether it's being a prisoner in exile, whether it's the third vignette of of being sick, And recognizing that much of our sickness, the passage is saying, is brought on by ourselves. We're we're trying to stay in control. We're, We're like the anorexic that is crying out for help, but isn't. And instead, they're trying to control their eating. Or someone who's obese. Or someone that's trying to numb their pain through alcohol or drugs. Those are cry for help, and yet they're... They're really not crying out for help. They still haven't come to the end of themselves. One of the most difficult thing about discipling or trying to help an alcoholic is they just don't come to the end of themselves. They refuse to believe. They need help. They think they can handle it on their own. And so many followers of Christ, we have that fight-scrap mentality when God is... Just calling us to come to the end of ourselves. The last vignette puts it all in perspective. It's sailors who are on the sea. And uh, Isra- Israelis didn't sail. It's really a strange historic phenomenon. They just didn't sail. So these people were obviously sailing uh, because they were under the rule of another nation. They were sailing for the sake of the Babylonians or the Assyrians. And, they're, and they're, the seas are just crazy rough. Uh, The the, the boat's about to fall apart. And these experienced sailors realize there's nothing they could do. All their skill. The text tells us they came to their wits end. They came to the end of themselves. And, And that's where all the vignettes are supposed to lead us. The problem is we don't tend to come to the end of ourselves until we've exhausted All of our own resources. And God is saying in this text. The first thing I want you to do. Is come to the end of yourself. Don't come to the end of yourself. The end of your rope. Because you've exhausted all of your resources. Let your first. Turn. Be in helplessness. To God. And when we do that. He meets us. The first option is to come to the end of self, the end of ego, the end of our own resources. The first option is to recognize we are completely and utterly helpless except for grace. Now look, I'm not saying, you know me better than this, I'm not saying Christians are not called to be responsible agents. Trust me, for many of us, that is not even close to being our problem. For most of us here in this church, most of the people watching, we are ultra-responsible We are control freaks. We're fighters. We won't stop until we're dead. God is saying, come to the end of yourself first. Lay yourself in surrender and resignation before me. And then if there's something I want you to do, I'll tell you. You'll eventually do it. But settle in my grace first. Martin Luther was a great reformer. You all know who he was in the 1500s. And he had a dear friend named Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon and Luther would often discuss the nature of grace. And they were having a discussion one day. And Melanchthon said, here's what the grace of God is like. It's like two parents trying to teach a toddler how to walk. And the toddler has the ability... And one of the parents grabs the toddler by the arm, and the other parent is across the room with an apple, sort of coaxing the toddler to use his strength with the help of the other parent and make it over to the room. And Luther threw down his Bible and said, No! That's not what grace is at all. Grace is a caterpillar in a ring of fire. And the only way out is deliverance from above. When your heart's in distress, what's your view of the steadfast love of the Lord? That you can do it and He can help? Or is it you need to come first to the end of yourself and hope in His grace alone? In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Be still and know that He is God. The Lord will fight for you. You must simply stand still. That is against everything in our culture. In counterintuitive to Everything within us. But it is in fact the message of Psalm 107. Let troubles bring you to the end of yourself. Secondly, let desperation bring you to the throne of grace. Coming to the end of yourself is not an end in itself. Coming to the end of yourself is the place of desperation that brings you to the beginning of Christ. In verses 6 13, 19, and 28. After every vignette, the people get to the end of themselves and they cry to the Lord in their trouble. And it says God delivered them from distress. Now, what's interesting is there are three different Hebrew words used for cry out. In our English Bibles, it all says cry out. But in the Hebrew in order to really drive home this idea of desperately bringing you to the throne of grace in prayer. There's three different words. The first Hebrew word means thunderous outcry. It means a desperate scream. Uh, it's the same word in, used in 2 Kings 4, verse 40, when you will remember uh, the prophet was eating with some of the men in the camp, and they had made a stew and somebody had put, in, uh, put a poisonous gourd in the stew. And all of them realized they were poisoned. What, what kind of cry would you have if you're eating a meal and you realize you've just been poisoned, right? That would be a thunderous outcry of desperation. Uh, I hesitate to even use this, but I've, I've got to. And, and it's, it's graphic and, and that's the whole point. Uh, It's the same word used in Deuteronomy 22 when a woman was being raped. What kind of a scream of desperation would that woman make? That's the first word for crying out to the Lord. The second Hebrew word is the cry of those who have come to the end of their rope. They're overwhelmed, they're burdened. Uh, This cry to the Lord is in Exodus chapter 2 when the Egyptians were um, just piling it on the Israelites. Uh, it, It happened when they were forced to make more bricks with fewer resources. It was like, enough, no moss. That kind of cry. That desperate cry of being overwhelmed at the end of your rope, at your breaking point. The third Hebrew word for desperate cry is from a desperate heart that's just received bad news. For instance, the word is used in Esther when Mordecai finds out that the evil man Haman had devised a plot to destroy the nation of the Jews. And he cries out to the Lord when he hears the bad news. The point is, we must be in true desperation... To have those cries at the end of our rope, at the end of self, that brings our hearts into contact experientially with the steadfast love of the Lord. Look, the steadfast love of the Lord is for us, whether we cry out or not. But our experience of the steadfast love of the Lord is often connected to our desperate cries for God to make real in our experience, the reality of his steadfast love. And whenever in these vignettes the people came to the end of themselves, they cried out to God in their trouble, and God delivers them from distress, the very thing they were concerned about and distressed over, he in fact brings about for them. For instance, in verse 7, when the people were wandering in the wilderness Unable to find a city, and they cried out in desperation. The Lord, in his steadfast love, led them, verse 7, in a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. And of course, that prefigures Christ. We are all wanderers, aliens, exiles on this planet, and we're desperate to find the city. We're desperate to get back into the garden. We're desperate to make it to the New Jerusalem. And as we come to the end of ourselves and cry out desperately for the steadfast love of the Lord to manifest itself in our lives, He, Jesus, leads us to the city to dwell in. Revelation 20, verse 2, 21, verse 2. In, In verse 9, as we wander and we run and wear ourselves out, when in fact God's saying, be still, we become hungry and thirsty. But if we cry out in desperation, we're led to John 6. Jesus, who's the bread of life, who satiates our hunger. We're led, when we're thirsty, to the wells of living water. Jesus, John chapter 4. When we're prisoners and we're trying to extricate ourselves, you know, there's certain knots that you can put on people that the more they struggle, the tighter the knots get. And that's so true of life. When God says, be still and know that I am God. When he says, in quietness and trust is your strength. When the Lord says, I will fight for you, you just be still. When we try to extricate ourselves through our own resources, the knots get tighter. And it says, as we finally, desperately come to end ourselves and cry out to the Lord, he bursts our bonds. And leads us out free in liberty. This, this verse, verse 10, where it talks about God breaking our bonds, it's used in the song of Zechariah about John the Baptist preaching Christ. It's used of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 when it says Jesus came to proclaim release to the captives. Let our desperation bring us to the throne of grace. Verse 20, the sick are healed as we cry out to the throne of grace. Christ, as he was alive, healed many, and he can still heal our sin sick souls today. Verse 30, when the waters were rough and the sailors came to the end of themselves, they cried out to the Lord in their distress, and he calmed the storms. Jesus did that too, remember? He stilled the wind and the waves. And, the text says, they were brought to their desired haven. To come to the end of ourselves is not an end in itself. To come to the end of ourselves is to be coming to the start of a fresh experience of the grace of Jesus. I know if you've been watching the news this week, but there was one story that really grabbed my attention. It's about a six-year-old boy named Bridger. Bridger and his little sister were out in the yard playing, and a dog, a vicious dog, came through the yard and was beginning to run right toward Bridger's little sister. At the last minute, like a superhero, he threw himself between his sister and the dog, just like a secret servant agent would throw themselves in front of a speeding bullet that was aimed at the president. The dog Viciously attacked Bridger. He was covered in blood. They didn't know how bad it was. They rushed him to the hospital. He ended up getting 99 stitches all around his face. He was interviewed by news outlets. The six year old boy was interviewed by news outlets. And he told the reporters, I remember thinking, If someone's going to have to die, it might as well be me. Chris Evans plays a superhero in the Marvel comic movies, Captain America. Well, it turns out that Bridger is into superheroes, and he's particularly fond of Captain America. Chris Evans heard about the story and called Bridger. And thanked him for his bravery. Called him a true hero. And he promised that a Captain America shield was on its way to use it well. And Bridger's sister said, you need to keep this wherever you go because you are a superhero. Jesus, we sang this morning, is our hero. He is more than all of the make-believe of superheroes combined, only he's real. And Jesus, for our sakes, hears us in our distress. And he comes between us and the vicious dog, the devil. And the teeth of the condemnation of the law that could destroy us. And Jesus says to those who know him, if anyone's going to die, it's going to be me. That's the God we call out to in our desperation. Let troubles bring you to the end of yourself. Let desperation bring you to the throne of grace. And then thirdly and finally, let reversals bring you to the practice of wisdom. Psalm 107 ends with an application point. You cannot leave Psalm 107 and not be challenged to do something. Look at verse 43 if you have your Bibles. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. All these stories, coming to the end of self, crying out in desperation, and then it finishes, let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Remember, over and over again, verse 8, verse 15, verse 21, verse 31, the refrain, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And at the end of the psalm, there's all kinds of reversals. For instance, in verse 33, we see the reversal that God turns rivers into deserts. And springs in the thirsty ground. So, to live a life of wisdom is remembering that in a time of prosperity, it may not always be this way. Who could have predicted six months ago that we would be experiencing what we're experiencing now in our country, in our world? We were at the height of economic expansion and prosperity, and overnight, things changed. And so living a life of wisdom in light of the reversals of God means that when we are prospering, we take note and live our lives accordingly, according to God's principles. But then the other kind of reversal, look at verse 36, but he turns the desert into pools of water and lets the hungry dwell there. Uh, the amazing story uh, in, in uh, I believe it's Kings, maybe Chronicles, I forget which right now. But uh, Israel was under attack. They were under siege. And when, it, when you're under siege, nothing gets in, nothing gets out. And, and this can go on for months and months and months. Well, things were so bad in Jerusalem that, that a cup of wheat went for like thousands of dollars. That's how desperate things were. And the people cried out to the Lord. They were desperate. They cried out and trusted in the steadfast love of God. And a prophet was raised up and said, I tell you the truth, by this time tomorrow, a bushel of wheat, which is many, many times a cup, right? A bushel of wheat wheat will sell for a few pennies. And some of the people mocked and said, How can this be? If God opened the floodgates of heaven, this could not be. Well, sure enough, during the night, God appeared to the enemy and the enemy was so terrified that they fled and left all their supplies for the taking. They were brought into the city and whereas 24 hours later, a cup of wheat were sold for thousands of dollars, a bushel of wheat sold for a couple pennies. God is a God of reversals. Your marriage right now may be terrible. The isolation you're feeling as a single person may be debilitating. Your your vocation right now may be worse than you've ever seen it. God is the God of the great reversals. And we live our lives in wisdom, trusting that He's in control. We are not victims We need not fear, but neither must we be foolish. We must practice a life of wisdom. Wisdom remembers that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Wisdom remembers that before a fall, there's great pride. Pride goes before the fall. But the one who is humbled, God lifts up. How are you handling everything that's been happening this year? Let me ask you this. Are you more confident or less confident in your views? If you're more confident about petty things in life right now, you've not yet come to the end of yourself. More confident in Christ and His ability to save? Absolutely. Your interactions with other people, are you more humble and winsome and attractive or do you have more sting? When it comes to COVID, I heard a terrible thing the other day. We've all heard, I know, of... uh, covid parties they've not been able to be fully substantiated at university of alabama uh, although they're fairly certain it's happened and and let's be reasonable i mean that used to happen when i was little uh our parents thought that the wisest thing to do was to have all the kids over when somebody had contracted chickenpox because you didn't want chickenpox when you were older because that was dangerous so you get it, you know, you just get sick from chicken pox, and it's, it's done with. And so, you know, there are some people that actually think that about COVID. And, of course, what the students do is a whole other level of stupid. But what, uh, what this other group did was they, there was a group in San Antonio, and, and they wanted to see, is this stuff for real? So this 30-year-old guy who really thought the whole thing was more of a hoax, he went to this COVID party. And uh, a few days later, he was admitted to Methodist Hospital in San Antonio. And Dr. Jane Appleby, who's the chief medical officer at Methodist Hospital in San Antonio, said the man died. In her statements to news organizations, Dr. Appleby said that the man had told the nurse that he had just attended a COVID party, and then just before he died the man told his nurse these words, I think I made a mistake. I thought this was a hoax, but I guess it's not. Now, I'm not really talking about COVID right now. I'm talking about the general principle of Proverbs fourteen twelve. There's a way that seems right to a man or a woman. But in the end, that way is death. Are we going to be a people of humility? Are we going to be a people determined to seek God's face? Are we going to be a people determined by God's grace to come to the end of ourselves? Are we going to be determined as the people of God to seek godly counsel? Are we going to be determined that our first move will be stillness. Are we going to seek the face of God? Will we wait on the steadfast love of the Lord and for his wondrous works to the children of man? Will we live a life of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord, which is not terror, which is trusting in his steadfast love. The psalm repeats the refrain over and over and over, probably because people like me are so slow to hear it. May we all be determined to cast ourselves on the steadfast love of the Lord, no matter what distress we face. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Psalm 107. We thank you for the, the instructions we get through the Israelites that you say in Corinthians, everything that happened happened to them, but for our sake, that we might learn about the gospel. So, Lord, wherever we're experiencing distress this morning, God, we we submit to you. We lay ourselves on the altar. We surrender afresh. And God, we cry out in desperation, cry out for your steadfast love and your wondrous work to the children of man. God, if there's anybody here this morning that that doesn't understand the need to come to the end of themselves with respect to salvation from sin, might today be the day they recognize all they can do is cast themselves upon the promises of grace in Christ. And Father, for those of us who are experiencing all kinds of distressful circumstances, may we cast ourselves helplessly afresh on Christ as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.